0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across from me today is the international best-selling co-author, Team Preston and Child. Despite being the first repeat visitors into my interrogation room, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child have again neglected to bring legal counsel and I fear my reputation as an effective investigator must be in serious decline. Along with their own respective titles, their co-authored works are wildly successful and they've grown an incredibly loyal and devoted fan base. As truly modern day renaissance men, their lives and backgrounds remain too interesting and extensive to adequately review here. Most relevant to this discussion is that both Child and Preston, I'm going to put Child first that time, are prolific authors with experience in editing and professional literary education. Readers have consumed millions of their books in seven languages all across the globe and are most familiar with their Pendergast series and its most recent release, Verses for the Dead. This month, they introduce us to a new series around one of their fans' favorite characters, Nora Kelly, entitled Old Bones. The publication lands at a bookstore and internet near you on August 20th. Gentlemen, Keeping in mind the rights I read to you before the show started, welcome to Writers on the Beat, and thanks for coming in to clear a few things up.
1: Well, I played the fifth.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I
2: um, think yeah, that was uh, that was quite an uh, a announcement. That the only thing I have to say about it is I think that um, seven languages being translated is probably... Um, an understatement. Uh, I understand that they're going to be translating our entire works into a linear B uh, next month.
0: Wow. should <laughs> it, it, new accolades never before known to authors. Now, I, I actually got in a little bit of trouble after our last discussion uh, when the, the fall of the House of Usher came up. I'm apparently not supposed to talk about the family's documented history of multi-generational madness, whether real or fictionalized. So I want to thank you two for dragging that out of me so freely.
2: Why are you not supposed to?
0: Well, uh, apparently if I'm going to stay married after today, um, I've got to, uh, got to keep the family secrets well under the rug, I guess. I don't know.
2: Ah, of course. Of course. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm flying through Old Bones Now, Douglas, and it's a gripping and intriguing read for for the unlucky millions without an advanced copy. What do you want them to know about this novel and your new series?
1: Well, the novel's based on the uh, Donner Party, which uh, most people know about. That was a group of uh, emigrants who were going to California to establish new lives in 1846, and they took a shortcut across the Rocky Mountains and were snowed in in the Sierra Nevadas uh, in the winter of 1846 and 47 and half of them starved to death and the survivors, many of them, ended up cannibalizing their dead relatives and fellow travelers. I became interested in the idea when I learned that there were two camps, Donner Camps, that had been excavated by archaeologists and they found some really unusual things. And so Lincoln and I were talking about this and we came up with the idea that maybe there was a third Donner camp, Mm -hmm. a lost camp. And so our novel is about the archaeological excavation of that lost camp. And it's the first novel in a new series uh, featuring Nora Kelly, who is one of our characters from the Pendergast novels, uh, who's an archaeologist. So she's excavating this lost camp and things making horrific discoveries, if you can imagine, worse than cannibalism. Wow. At the same time, we have another character who's just become uh, a newly minted FBI agent, and that's Corey Swanson. And she's investigating a series of murders and grave robberies uh, where bodies are being dug up and then other, sometimes a, a dead body is put in the grave and so forth. And um, these two paths come together in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And that's really where the, the thriller begins. And I wish I can't really talk any more about it because I don't want to give it away, but that's <laughs> sort of essentially the, the opening of the novel.
0: Now, I, I, I love that the, the very first chapter of this book link, I love that it opened in Paris because I have a complicated relationship with the city of lights. It's, At once a beautiful, dirty, historic, alive, dangerous, and romantic place. I wonder if either of you made a trip for any on-the-ground research in support of Old Bones.
2: Um, In the case of that particular chapter, uh, it's funny you should bring that up because, um, you know, Doug and I divide the book up usually by, uh, by sequence um of uh, of events or or by you know a subplot um and that that chapter was written quite late in the uh, um on, on the development when we realized that, that we uh, a bit of a setup was necessary and um I took the lead on it and uh um, uh that it was a product of um my uh my memory of the city and a bit of research because doug didn't you say to me this chapter is good but you can't see you know um notre dame from that spot but, and, <laughs> yeah that's, and but uh, that's
1: right you know I, I had just been in paris i just spent two weeks in paris <gasps> and i thought god dan you cannot see notre dame from that spot along the Seine. Mm -hmm. And so Lincoln said, yes, you can. And so (laughs) I went to Google Earth, uh, Google Street View, and put myself right at that spot and looked towards Notre Dame, and by God, you could see Notre Dame. Link was correct. (laughs) i was really disappointed that Link was correct, because usually I'm the one who's correct.
2: You know. <laughs> but anyway, to answer your question that now is the happy um uh, synergy of both personal experience and and um the wonders of modern technology but um we uh doug has traveled over the uh, west by, on horseback mm-hmm. uh to such a degree um that that he can write about it with a with um, surprising authority, and uh, I say it's surprising because um, you know after the last couple of cracks he's made about me, I'm surprised <laughs> I'm seeing anything nice about him. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, but but surprise aside, you know, um, uh, no no particular uh, trips were made here, only because. Uh, they weren't necessary. Uh, Doug knew this site really well, and um, and what he didn't know uh, was the part of the story that is uniquely our own, and um, can only be, only be found in the pages of the book.
0: Now, the manuscript deadline for my last conspiracy novel was April 26th, and it's primarily set in Paris after Notre Dame burned on April 15th, I specifically made time in the following days to go back and, and change a few chapters to update the story. Did you feel any similar pressure, Doug, to change the Paris scenes in old bones? Well, we were. Both of us were devastated by that fire.
1: But unfortunately, the, the book was already uh, finished, a typeset, and put into pages, and ready. It may have even been, well, anyway, it was it was too late to make any changes, so unfortunately, we we weren't able to actually alter that initial chapter. Now, the novel's set in California, so mm-hmm. the only there's there's only one chapter in Paris, but uh, but you will read that chapter, and it is Notre Dame is still there, and uh, there's no scaffolding, and there's no mention of the fire because it was simply too late. Uh,
2: I'll- Although I should mention that both the Knights Templar and the Three Musketeers uh, <laughs> tried to um, get us to change that because, you know, we didn't, you know, the conspiracy that was behind, uh, they didn't want us to, to, to uh, reveal.
0: That's right. You know, when, uh, when the fire is still raging and it's already been declared not an arson, it automatically reeks of conspiracy to me.
1: You never know. I mean, they're. Uh, yeah, I think. Well, uh, most conspiracy theories are are defective because people are just not that competent. You know, people <laughs> aren't able to pull off the kind of conspiracies that people yeah. think are are being pulled off. They're just too darned incompetent.
0: Yeah, especially in groups. You know, singly we're not bad. Doubles we're not bad. You get a team together, and it's going to fail. Exactly. Now with your experience out in the in the West doug I, I wonder what um, what specifically inspired the uh, the Donner treasure that historian Clive Benton finds early on if that was something based on an actual piece of Donner history or if, if that was just something entirely fictionalized for for your imagination
1: that 's an actual piece of Donner history, and it absolutely amazes me when when I did. We did a tremendous amount of research into the Donner Party and the history of it. That part of the story told in our novel is absolutely true. There was a man named Wolfinger. He had uh, was carrying gold. Uh, his wagon became mired. These two other characters went back to supposedly help him, and they murdered him for his gold. And then one of them admitted, while he was starving to death on his deathbed, while they were in the in the mountains and snowed in, admitted that they had killed wolfinger for his gold and i was never able to find a single historian or mention of anyone wondering what happened to that gold wow and i still wonder why historians haven't focused on this because um you know the donna party was snowed in these two guys killed wolfinger for his gold both of them died so the gold must have been hidden somewhere in -hmm. that area And yet, there's never any mention among the rescuers of gold. Now, someone might have taken it and not said anything, but there's no mention anywhere. So, in our novel, we said, made the logical conclusion that the gold is still there. Certainly. And it may actually be true. That's the incredible (laughs) thing about this, is that this this part of our novel may actually be true. There may be hidden somewhere in that area uh, a treasure of gold that Wolfinger was carrying.
0: The last time that we spoke, Link, uh, you two characters talked about all the detail and effort that went into creating Pendergast, including altering his surname enough to keep it distant from living New Orleanians. Uh, You obviously didn't have the same issue with the name Nora Kelly, but I wonder how much research you two collectively did into her professional background to make her a realistic and convincing archaeologist.
2: It's funny you should mention that because um, she first appeared in uh, Thunderhead which was uh, not a, a, um, a pentagast novel. Um, uh, although it did feature uh, Bill Smithback who later became her husband, um, who had who, who, who'd been with us since Relic. Um, and uh, this seems an ideal subject to both of us because uh, we were both fascinated by, by the Anasazi um and uh, we both had uh archaeological background uh doug had i believe an aunt um who was the first female underwater archaeologist. is that correct doug that's right and uh, my own grandmother uh was a uh a a novelist uh, painter and um archaeologist who uh, worked on many digs, including the famous uh, dig at Masada, um, where where she she was not initially welcome and got 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 into the uh, action as a as a uh, illustrator, um, and uh, was soon uh, directly and closely involved. And renamed uh, the character of Bella after her. So, um, we were both fascinated by archaeology. We both have a family history um, in archaeology. And um, one thing we always try and do is educate our readers about some new discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, if we, and the more we can integrate in the story, the, the, the better it will be for the story's credibility and the more interesting the, the overall experience can be for the reader. Um, and oh, we found that in the case of Thunderhead, that uh, archaeology was a perfect uh, foil for us. And Sally Turner is such an interesting character; she's reappeared in in a number of uh, the the Pendergast books, uh, particularly Cabinet of Curiosities, which was in many ways our breakout book. Um, she was his. Uh, one of his tours being uh, main sidekicks and then again in the cemetery dance um, so that's definitely that's really the background of Nora and um, and, and archaeology it, it, uh, it just it came naturally to us and uh, it, although of course we did research um, uh, as necessary on, on all. Books where she does of work, um, it was something that, that, that uh, was already that something sort of in her bones, so to yeah, speak.
0: Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to me. I'm really, I love archaeology, and it's amazing to me, even in just my lifetime, how specifically with the Anasazi, when the first time I visited Mesa Verde in probably, I don't know, 1987, 88, somewhere around there, you know, the the thought was that. You know the cliff dwellings and the Anasazi people they like they just disappeared, they just up and left for one day for no known reason, and we were back uh, up there just a few years ago, and just over that you know i guess forty ish thirty ish years, um, you know the archaeological thought and the evidence now seems to suggest that all of the the tribes uh, around Arizona and New Mexico are descendants of that anasazi people and it 's incredible to me how these like time traveling detectives are able to put all of this together, it's just incredibly fascinating.
2: Have you you considered any late late breaking theories as as to why they left as suddenly as they did?
0: The last that uh, that I had read or or heard about it, the thought was that the climate had shifted. Um, they were the herds had moved on because water flows had changed and. And that that had uh, propelled them down into, uh, down into the Pueblos. Well,
1: there's, the, there's another theory about that, which is actually a theory that we developed in our novel Thunderhead, uh, which is that the, there was an invasion of warriors from the south, from the Aztec Empire. Wow. Who came up and took over. The, the, these disparate tribes living who are sort of collectively known as the Anasazi and established that whole system at Chaco Canyon and wow. instituted the practice of human sacrifice and cannibalism. And in fact, they've discovered a number of charnel sites, d- deposits around the Southwest where large numbers of people were butchered, cooked and eaten and their bones were then left, almost as a display, uh, as a threat. you know. And archaeologists believe this was cannibalism, not starvation cannibalism like the Donner camp. Mm-hmm. But this was cannibalism as terrorism. Wow. It was a group of people showing, you know, this is what we can do to you. This is what we can do, so don't mess with us. And by leaving these eaten human remains out there for all to see, it was sort of a public... Uh, announcement of, you know, we're tough, we're mean, don't mess with us. So um, the, uh, the great migrations and movements and abandonments in the Southwest were caused by this tremendous invasion and uh, social unrest and warfare caused by this group moving up from the Aztec Empire and bringing with them the tradition of cannibalism.
0: Well, you guys just changed my reading list for the rest of the summer. Congratulations.
1: Thank
2: you. Well, read our, well of read course, it, read now, now, now they know that the real answer is that they had just, they got wind that somebody had, had wired the Monterey Peninsula with uh, broadband <laughs> internet. So they all had to leave. And, uh... That's
0: right. The Santa Monica Pier was opening. They had to go. <laughs> yeah. Now, Link, from a from a craft perspective, I I really enjoyed how – you guys used dialogue in the early chapters between Benton and Kelly to credential her and her archeological background for new readers. Was that a deliberate decision on your part as the author or or did the characters kind of work that out for themselves in their conversation? Uh,
2: I would say that it was a, uh, an instinctual uh, unconscious effort on our part Um, uh, because, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the mossy old, old saying, you know, "show don't tell." Yes, and um, and and we had the job of of we had several jobs in the opening chapters, you know. Um, in addition to keeping them keeping our our readers interested in the opening of the book, which is always you know of prime importance for obvious reasons, we had to introduce Nora. And and show or why she was worthy of being the heroine, and we had Clive Donner. I, I mean Clive, with an interesting, uh, very interesting story to tell. But we didn't want to sort of you know dump it all into a single chapter where we and where we could where we could spread this information both for the sake of interest, and for the sake of now overwhelming a woman and a reader over a, over a couple of chapters. And so we, we very carefully broke it out into a series of conversations that they had um, in which we tried to bring out their past in the most normal way possible. You know, um, Clive Benton in describing how he learned about the diary, the missing diary, for example, uh, uh which started this whole thing, you know, described his background, and of course, he knew Nora because he saw her out, and so, um, uh, we were able to have her ask, you know, what are you doing here? which gives him a perfect opportunity to, to, um, uh, uh a, a tell a reader, and you know, um, uh, I, I, I have a lot of fun, if that's the word, watching. You know, um, B movies in which they they say things like, "Oh, John, I you know I understand that you are, you know, uh, a lawyer who has uh, given up your practice for, uh, uh, you know, uh, fly fishing, uh, you know, off the coast of Mozambique. You know, how's that working out for you?" Uh, and you know these choose info dumps that are so. Uh, um, have insisted yes. uh, and we we try really hard to uh for obvious reasons to to avoid that.
0: Now, Doug, because you guys write so much in the in the same universe, even though write different stories and different characters, I kind of have in, in my imagination, there are two oh. respective court boards in each of your home offices, right, with thumbtacks and red yarn and grainy pictures of alleged conspirators and scribbled post-it notes that uh, you guys use to try to keep all these stories straight and also kind of make your wives think it might be time for some professional intervention in your, in your, uh, you know, conspiracy theories. How do you, how do you guys uh, actually manage to organize all of this? So there's not conflicts between your stories and novels.
1: Well, that's a very good question. Now we plot the books very carefully. So Lincoln and I will, first of all, we'll put together a narrative of the entire book and we know where we're going and we know where it's going to end up in general terms. And then we'll map out 15 chapters, very, very in very detailed format, so that each chapter has uh, a long, multi paragraph description of what's going to occur in that chapter. And then we divide up the chapters. So Link will take a thread of chapters from one person's point of view, like Pendergast's point of view. And I'll take a thread of chapters from someone else's point of view, and we'll write them. And when and because we've outlined things so carefully, we don't we do run into problems where Link will go in one direction, I might go in another, and all of a sudden we find that there's incongruities. Mm -hmm. But that usually can be solved by talking about it, figuring out how to merge some of the conflicts, and then we swap the chapters. And I rewrite Link's chapters extensively, and he rewrites mine. That's perhaps the most difficult part of our writing <laughs> because we both get really pissed off at each other. Why did you change that? That was so perfect. That was beautiful. Oh, it was it was garbage. It was no good. You know. So we have these uh, arguments. It's you know a bit like a bad marriage. and we're constantly sniping at each other during that period. But as a result, because we both rewritten and rewritten each other's chapters, that smooths out and fixes all the incongruities. Um, And Link is really great at drawing up a timeline of each chapter, when the chapter takes place, where it takes place, exactly what time frame, and so forth, so that that we don't get screwed up in terms of chapters being out of order in terms of the time. So that's pretty much how we keep things straight.
0: Now, Doug, since you kind of brought this up with that last answer, I, I want you to know: as the victim of crime, you have certain rights, and we can even assign a victim's advocate to help guide you through your recovery process. Uh, <laughs> you, you've worked under Link's belittling and heavy-handed ways for like twenty novels now, and I wonder if it's your Stockholm syndrome that allows this partnership to work so well.
1: <laughs> you put it very well. Yes, I think it, very heavy-handed. When, when I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult. To die, to You know, they say in a writing partnership that each partner does two-thirds of the work. (laughs) And uh, I think we both feel that way. I do two-thirds. He thinks he does two-thirds. But we each have our own uh, specialties. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm good at the action chapters. I'm good uh, at certain types of chapters. Link is really good at writing, you know, the sickest, most twisted serial killer. When you write a chapter, when we write a chapter from his point of view, Link's the one who writes that chapter because he has strange insight into these sick minds. I mean, he looks like a normal person, Link does. He seems, if you met him on the street, you'd think he was a normal person, but there's something back in there that's really kind of twisted. So Link writes those chapters. Um, He also actually being serious now, he, he is better at some of the chapters that involve human relationships. But, you know, between people, their their relationships, the joking, the talking to each other. He's he's really good at that banter.
2: Doug might uh, d- uh, take take umbrage with this, but I think if, if we were to, and this would not be a good idea, if we were to sit down and actually count out what happened, Doug almost undoubtedly writes, writes more words than I do. Um, but I, I I would argue that I come up with solutions to, to problems in many instances um, that uh, help us out of ruts. Um, so so while Doug is gifted with a very facile pen, and my pen is much slower than his, um, I I have such a neurotically active imagination that. Um, we, we we dig into that um many times just to get ourselves out of out of uh, problems and now and then something something some idea will strikes me that the the that, that Doug uh, then builds on and um becomes a new part of our stories. This isn't to say that Doug doesn't have his own set of brainstorms. He of course does. Um mm-hmm. It's just that my that twisted sick mind, Doug referred to, is always working overtime in the imagination department. Um, I don't know, Doug. Would you call that a fair character?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, Link Link has this amazing ability to when we find ourselves in a dead end, like what are we going to do now? We've written ourselves yes. into a dead end, or we've really hit a th- thorny problem lincoln will suddenly come up with the most outrageously interesting brilliant and different solution and that yeah. is really a product of genius um that's that's one of his great strengths um so it whereas um in my instance i do most of the traveling for mm-hmm. our in terms of research for our books link is not a not a traveler very much i'm a, a world traveler and so you know, with the exotic settings and things like that, all often go to those areas and, and do the research. So we each bring our own strengths to the books. And uh, I think we're just really lucky that we found each other in the sense that we, our strengths complement each other. You know, his, yes. where I'm weak, he's strong. And where he's weak, I'm strong. So we're able to put that together and produce, I think, books that are better than the books that we write on our own, for the most part.
0: Now, Link, I, I wonder when you first knew that you wanted to be a writer and who was your first writing mentor?
2: Um, that's a difficult question to answer because I never really wanted to be a, a writer even before I could, I could, I could write. I mean, um, I would, uh, and I've told this story before like my dad I was a chemistry professor, and he would bring home empty blue books. Which I would just fill with lines just to, um, uh, pretend I was writing. And I was writing stories and comic books, um, and graphic novels, uh, in, in, you know, when I was 10, 11, and 12. Many, many of them, um, uh, many of which were thrown away, um, uh, and then uh, been lost to history. It was a great tragedy. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I often compare it to the burning of the Library of Alexandria in, yes. <laughs> in terms of its, its cultural importance. Um, uh, you know, even in high school, I, I wrote a novel, and by the time I finished writing it, um, uh, I learned so much that there was no point in rewriting it, and I just started a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing, the funny thing is, and the reason I mention all this is because in college and majoring in English, I got so involved in the in the critic critical aspects of 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 English, you know, literature analysis and, and uh, criticism, um, that, that my own writing suffered. It became way too. Uh, um, Self-conscious, and, and it just was painful to write and even more painful to read. And then when I went into publishing, it was just an, an, an overwhelming onslaught of manuscripts coming into me. Um, many of which were bad, you know, unfortunately. Um, and having to read them constantly, just, you know, I tried here and there. I had, I had ideas for stories setting the catacombs under under row and, and you know, this and that and the other thing, but, but they just well, each time that I, I turned to my computer, you know, it was like, I felt like work because, well, I did that same thing for work. So um, that, that interest that had that produced a huge amount of really terrible juvenilia dried up until Doug and I began writing and, um, I, I, I fully realized that it, it I could I could, it, it could be fun for me again. Um and I, I apologize for the long answer. My first big influence is Way Graham Poe and HP Lovecraft and they were terrible influences on a <laughs> writer. Um, because if you're trying to write in the in the style of Lovecraft, um with his, you know, antiquated diction and, and uh Uh, lengthy compound sentences Um, at age 12. It's a a definite recipe for uh, insomnia.
0: Now, the last time that you guys were here, we talked about your respective murder investigations, hypothetically, of course, God forbid. But, uh, Doug, what I'd like to know this time is what Nora Kelly would learn about you if she digs out that corner booth in the house of ill repute you call a home office like a thousand years from now?
1: (laughs) Nora Kelly would probably be horrified. First of (laughs) all, my office is only eight by 10. It's about the size of a, of a privy and it's out in the woods here uh, where it's very quiet and it's completely stuffed with books and notes and journals and, and junk. She'd probably be horrified at what she found. And I certainly would not want her reading my private journals. I'm probably going to burn them before I die because, you know, I I don't think that I think there are probably things in there that I would rather not have people know about.
0: And Link, what would she learn about you?
1: I think
2: that uh, Doug Privy is a remarkably apt description, <laughs> considering what is generated the inside.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you very <laughs> I set you up for that one. <laughs> uh,
2: what would you find about me? She would find that uh, a terrible human tragedy of I've been wrong all these years as as a, as a recluse and as as a dog by other writer uh named Doug Preston uh who <laughs> who always came first and who had and they had bullied psychologically and tormented me to such <laughs> a degree that I that I was basically, you know, stockholmed into uh, doing his bidding and it was like do <laughs> Ma and and his fellow writer, you know, the guy who wrote ninety percent of stuff. So I think that she would find a, a very sad story leading up to my eventual gathering of enough courage to, to break out of this which caused my suspicious and untimely death, which has still not been brought to light.
0: I greatly appreciate you guys stepping in back in the interrogation room here and for so kindly playing along. As always, it's, it's an honor to have you both here.
1: Well, we love uh, t- talking to you, Gavin. We uh, really appreciate your interest in our books.
0: My
2: lawyer advised me to say that we really enjoyed <laughs> it and would be happy to, uh, to uh, come, come back again.
0: You've been listening to Writers on the Beach where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. And this episode's guests have been Renaissance men and acclaimed international bestsellers, *President and Child. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.